Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always, and today we're joined by a very passionate and interesting man, David Ledick. For 20 years, David was the worldwide creative director for Revlon at Grey Advertising in New York, as well as a director of television commercials in France. He has 30 books published, as well as six novels, and today he's here to share with us some of his tips for business success. As a man who has worked with major brands with massive budgets, dealt with all tiers of the corporate ladder, and then successfully transitioned into his sixth career, he has an immense amount of life and business experience to share with us. David, thank you so much for your time and for joining me today. How are you doing, my friend? Very well. It's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome. So, yeah, so um, obviously that really is a diverse background. I mean, to go from the corporate world to being an author and all the different facets that you're in, and now you're in your sixth career in that. Um, so maybe can you maybe talk a little bit about the beginning? Like, how did you even get started? I mean, for a lot of us here, I think they want to hear about your work with Revlon, but I think your whole journey has a lot of value to give. Um, I know a little bit about your story myself, but how did you even get started in the advertising world? I was very lucky in that I had an uncle and aunt who were actually had an agency in New York. I was brought up in the Middle West, and uh, I always felt I was heading to New York, and I had visited them. My father had died relatively young, and I had spent a lot of time with my uncle and aunt, and I had been in and out of New York as a teenager. So I I was quite familiar with the world of advertising, and I thought, well, that's, that's what I'll do. I was an officer in the Navy, and then when I came out, I went to New York, and my aunt, who knew everybody in the world, wrote me like six letters of introduction, and I had two job offers within two weeks, which I kind of took for granted at the time. Now I realize, of course, it was very unique, but the thing it taught me is very often and it's so important to, to know somebody, and I've always tried very hard to be very helpful because I realize I may be the only person someone knows in this field, and I can help them and, and, and move them along. I always had a policy. Anybody who called me you know, at Gray Advertising, I saw them. I, I, I never turned anybody away. I tried to be as helpful as I could. That's awesome. But, uh, she was was great, and I went to work at Kenyon and Eckhart very shortly thereafter, which I, it was very fortunate. I was very fortunate to have that kind of contact. Right, and I'm right, right. Always, and always, I'm always very willing to, you know, extend myself as much as I can because I realize how important that is. Mm, 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 mm. So you said you, you know, you were very fortunate when you got started at Revlon with uh, with Gray Advertising. Did you have to work your way up the ladder? Did you get inserted right away at the beginning? Oh yeah, no, you because you know, <laughs> in New York, 
if you work more than as your way up, if you work more than a year and a half or two years at an agency, they think there's something wrong with you. Really? You've got to keep, yeah, because you've got to keep changing because you will always be paid a great deal more going to another agency than your present agency will ever give you as a raise. Mm-hmm. So I went through, I went from Kenyon and Eckhart, uh, I, I went to a number of different, I was at BBDO, I was at uh, Norman Craig and Cummel, I finally went up to, because I had, uh, uh, I was at Hockaday as a senior writer, and I wrote kind of a famous campaign for Grant Scotch called As Long As You're Up, Get Me a Grant. And I got a lot of attention from that as a senior writer. Mm. So then I was able to go as a group head to Norman Craig and Kummel on Hertz Rent-A-Car. And then as a group head, I, after I was there, maybe a year and a half or so, Smith & Dorian, which was a small agency just getting underway, needed a creative director. So I went to them as a creative director. And I had worked with a lot of small creative accounts at Hockaday Associates, which uh, was a very, very creative agency. So we kind of modeled ourselves on that. And then I was contacted by Gray because they needed a, a, a worldwide creative director for Revlon. So I went in to see them, and I got that job. And you're always, salary-wise, you move up far more rapidly changing jobs than staying in the same place. And I, had, I don't think advertising advertising is in a world where the agency offers you security because if they if they i always said every day you went to work at an agency could be your last right because if they lost the account they fired the entire staff on that account immediately really always because they don't want to pay salaries on a group of people that there's no work for them to do Right, right, right. And so, and Gray was a very, very tough place, a very tough place. But it was, you know, I think. Now, why was it tough? Could, what made it pardon tough? Pardon me? What, why was it tough? What made it tough? Um, they were extreme. There was no, not much personal care. You were valued to the degree that you held on to your client. And Revlon at that time, at that time, the uh, Advertising Age magazine, every year they published a list of the 10 worst clients in the United States. Okay. Revlon was always number one. Why? Always. Well, you would go to meetings and they would say things like, you know, you're all washed up. You used to have talent. I don't think you have any talent anymore. I don't know why you bring me this crap. You ought to pay for it yourself. It's no junk. It's not any, you know, that was the general level of conversation in a meeting at Revlon. Got it. Sounds like a lovely work experience. And you learned very rapidly how to, you know, the big things, I'm looking at sort of a list of, of questions that you had for me before we had the interview. And the one thing I wanted to say to people who are beginning is there are two things. One is that you have to realize you need to get credibility. So whatever your first job is, you just bite the bullet and do it for two years because you have to have credibility. I am a an account person, a writer, whatever I am, I'm going to do this for two years within this place no matter what. And then you kind of realize I have to remove myself from uh, my self-esteem and what kind of playback I'm getting at work are two different categories. They're not the same. They're not the same thing. And in advertising, you will never get you'll never get self-esteem because it's sort of a rule of the day is nobody ever likes anything. So if you begin to think I'm only as good as the playback I'm getting from the client or the agency, you know, you can't do that. You have to be very professional and you have to say to yourself, I know I am a very good whatever. 
I don't care what they say. I know what I can do, and I know who I am. And I always had a big sign up on my wall in my office, and it said, the trick is not caring. You know, that was, that's my quote for people. The trick is not caring. You have to, a professional person withdraws within themselves. And they said, they, you know, they don't mind losing battles as long as they win the war. Right, 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 right. And you have to realize that, you know, you're, <laughs> these terrible meetings, but you've developed techniques. I mean, if we went to them with a new concept, we had six, always six concepts. I learned that from my uncle. You know, if you have six different possibilities for them to choose from, they'll choose one because you've got enough. They look silly if they don't choose one. You know, there's too much there for they. If you take them one, they'll turn that down for months. And another one, turn it down. Another one, turn it down. You know, so you had to devise techniques that would they put them in a position where they had to take make a choice. And we were very successful. We did great stuff for them. Great. Right. right. You yeah. know, and uh, they would never ever. You know, the only their only indication they liked something was to say nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a hard, what a tough crowd, man. But they paid. They paid. You know, the agency. They, they were Revlon at that time was spending something like thirty-four million dollars a year on advertising, which in the nineteen sixties, I don't even know what that would be today. Yeah, you know. Right. Right, right. It was an enormous amount of money, and it was one of the agency's top clients, and they do not want to lose them. Of course. You know. So uh, can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, because a couple of things I think are really important for some of the listeners is talking about, I mean, you mentioned just, you know, with your client, especially if you're new, uh, you want to build up your credibility. So if you land a major client, and sometimes it's, you know, they're they're not even necessarily like bad people. I mean, I know it was like the top worst clients, but in a lot of ways, I mean, to be able to afford to spend that kind of money on advertising, they have to have, like, you can't just be a yes man right in fact you almost need to be the opposite you need to have high expectations so that's almost what it sounds like it sounds like they had very 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 high expectations they did and I think yeah and I think they thought their technique was you demanded a great deal to get the maximum out of your team that you were working with at the agency and you kind of finally everybody kind of knew what they were doing which is kind of a game and you kind of knew what they were doing and and it didn't bother you, you know. And you would you would see, you'd come in and you'd get what you want. You got what you wanted. You want they were going to pick one of the campaigns. Okay, let's get out of here. You know that was what you went in for. Right. And if you and if you did that very consistently, because you know you you didn't want to have to keep going back, because we had my gosh, we used to do four to six television commercials a month and maybe four or five print ads. And they did all the advertising for the whole world all at the same time. You know, right. it, was, it was massive. So you had to keep moving because if you got behind in your work schedule by a month or so, you were sunk. Right. You know, you just, it was just too much for anybody to do. Right. So you had to kind of keep a big picture in your mind. But as far as people starting their job and getting credibility, I think they, they just have to realize, you know, it's not what it is, it's what it looks like to other people, to outsiders. So you say, okay, this person is here. They worked at Batten, Barton, Durston, Nosborn two years on, you know, Ford automobiles. Fine. Okay. That's the kind of person, that's who we're looking for. And then, you, then they hire you to work on another major automobile in another agency for a lot more money. Right. 
you know? Right, right. So I have a question. You're doing these, these campaigns for Revlon. Like, how do they grade it? Like, how do they track the, like, do they, are they tracking the ROI of it? Like, what were the criteria? I mean, because there's... It some... had linked entirely to sales. Linked entirely to sales. Yeah. Perfect. Because they get a lot of publicity, but they, they had a technique. It's, I don't know. You tell me if I'm digressing, but they launched a lot of products because they realized that a number of them were not going to make it. You know, a number of them would not be successful, but the ones who were, that were successful were going to make tons of money because in that business, the difference between a Revlon product and a Clairol product or another beauty maker product really was in what the public thought of the manufacturer because the products were very similar. Right. So the advertising was really what created an ambiance and an attitude towards the products. The advertising was really crucial. And if suddenly you, you, know, you stepped out there and you did something and they just jumped off the shelves, that meant that campaign was successful. And they... You know, they would complain, but they would maybe launch a, you know, face makeup, and it wouldn't be successful. They anticipated. Charles Revson was the president. He was brilliant. He was like, you know, the worst person on earth, but he was a brilliant man. And he realized, you know, not all the products are going to make it. That's why we do, we'll do 20 instead of four, you know? Right. And if some of them don't make it, fine, because the ones that make it are going to make it so big, it's well worth doing it that way. You know, it's funny you mention that, because I had an interesting um, talk with uh, Gary Ranker from Guthy Ranker, the state's U.S., uh, the largest infomercial company in, the, in America. And he was saying that they have something like 225 profitable infomercials that they've done over their 20-something years. And he's like, the first mm -hmm. 200, they do 1 to 5 million a year, something like that, profitably. And he's like, out of the remaining 25, 10 of them do kind of 10 to 50 million a year. And the other 10 do like 50 to 100 million a year. And of the five, there's three that do 100 to 250 million a year. And then there's two that do 50 million to 750 million a year. You know, but he's, he's talking about like, that's like, you know, that's how many that they've. Like, you think about that, right? Like, just exactly what you say. I mean, they've got 225 infomercials, and there's only five, right? But those five are just crushing everything else. Uh, so. so huge, yeah. And that, and you have to realize this is the nature of this kind of work, and you've got to do all that. You have to do all – you can't you can't know in advance which five are going to work. Right. So you know? what, what, what did you do? What, like, what was the process for trying – because obviously you have to do some sort of market research, and you've got to try and get some polls. I mean, was it all focus group driven? Was it – well, this is sort of, or... it's curious, it's sort of pre-research, because gray advertising was very research-oriented, but Revlon was not. And Revlon had a lot of confidence in what creative people sensed, because I used to go to Europe twice a year and make a tour of, you know, visiting people who were creating products and, and couture houses and kind of getting an idea of, like, where are we going? Because we had to work a lot of stuff with, it work a year ahead. We had to project what, you know, what would the colors be, what would the look be, how would the models look a year you ahead. know wow. a year ahead because they were doing stuff for you know for the whole world right so i used to do that and i would come back i always told people this and i said well i i i think and they said don't tell us how you think tell us how you feel because they felt that creative people, you know, were not, it wasn't a matter of analyzing. It was a matter of you, you're sensing, okay, this is where fashion is going. This is where beauty is going. This is where women's thoughts are going. This is, and the interesting thing is that business, you know, the fashion industry is very predictive 
of what's going to go happen next in the world. It's very curious. When what you, you see what, what you mean by that? Well, not to disturb you, sure. but at the at the moment at this moment in time, fashion has, has many, many, many different looks drawn from many different fashion periods. And there's not a real look. It's a mix-up of everything. And the only, the only time historically that fashion has been in this position was immediately before World War One. Really? Mm-hmm. Really, really, really. That's interesting. Yeah. When you look at pictures before fashion from that early 20th century period, you see that, you know, skirts were up, skirts were down, but da 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 they were wearing this, all bits and pieces, very similar. So, I, you know... I tell everybody, brace yourself. God knows what's going to happen next. Wow. And so, you know, wait, So that, everyone's very fascinated with predicting the future. And I'm just curious as to, so, I mean, this obviously, I guess you need to have a deep understanding of fashion and be really involved in the industry and the trends. Is there, like, I don't know, how, how or, I guess you don't know, it's just, it just seems to be there's correlation, not necessarily causation. Um, between the changes in fashion industry, because that, that's just a really, that's a really... In- uh, you know, I don't know why, Daryl. I have no idea why, but I have, I, I, can, I have seen this, you know, because during World War II, for example, it's when women had very broad-shouldered clothing and uh, mannish suits, that kind of thing, because the men were all, you know, gone to the service. And that was a, it was a very direct reflection of what women had to do, you know. And in the 1920s, you know, Chanel was the one who launched, you know, women wearing pants. Before which Coco Chanel, women did not wear slacks. Really? No, did not exist. And she, so the 1920s is really when women began to, and the look was very young, boyish. You know, that was when they cut off their hair. They were very flat-chested, very skinny. Their skirts went way up. You saw their skinny legs. You know, it's something women had to transform from being quite... Zoftic, quite buxom, into being like these teenagers that were very boyish looking because, and that reflected, you know, women were, it was the first flush of women being equal to men. Right. Right, it's right, it's right. very very interesting. I mean, and I just you know I always I read all the fashion magazines because even now, because I kind of want to see where we're going. I can kind of see we're going things because you know I don't know if you're interested in my projection, but I think you know our relationship with South America is going to be extremely strong. Really? Yeah, I think that's. That? I think. I think that we're going to find that uh, Europe is going to become very, very uh, multicultural, multiracial, multi, uh, not at all have the influence internationally that it has now. I think Asia is going to become kind of Asia, India is going to become another kind of world. And I think that the Western Hemisphere, the North and South America, are going to be... I don't know. They're going to have to depend on each other greatly because they're not going to want to have. I think we're going to be less international. I think they're going to want the Western Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere is going to provide lots and lots of know-how, and the Southern Hemisphere is loaded with you know stuff that hasn't been developed yet. Right. We're going to be very. We're probably going to all be very bilingual, mm. and uh, I think you know. I think that's. I mean, I have a home in Uruguay. I go. To, I live in South America two or three months a year, right. 
And I just, you know, it's it's booming. It's booming. Got it. South America is booming. And all the, our feelings about it's very dangerous and, and you know, drugs are coming from there. So that's all true. But the, the moment that North America begins to come in and our companies come in, it straightens up. It's amazing. It straightens up very quickly because they say, no, we don't do business that way. We're not a corrupt company. We do not do business that way. They get into line. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Right. Well, because they, they have opportunity and opportunities that they've never had before. I think they, the corruption part is part of just trying to survive, and you just do what yeah. you can to get ahead. And if those rules won't – if you can't play by those rules, but there's you the opportunity. Shift. Right, right, exactly. And the opportunity's there, and you believe in it, then it goes. No, I'm, I'm very interested because what really piqued my interest was, like I was saying, you're, the fact that you know Revlon spending millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars, and um, – you know, and that, and a lot of it was being based on your predictions, and that's right. the part because that's huge. like trend spotting is a huge thing in business and being able to see where the where the puck is. Was Wayne Gretzky? I'm Canadian, right? Wayne Gretzky. You know, he says he always plays to where the puck is going to be, not where it is. So exactly. that is yeah. something like, like I mentioned, just to to understand your process because you know there might be transferable lessons from that that we can glean to to apply to ourselves in our own right. business. So I think what you do is that get. You look at leadership because at that time, not so true now, but at that time, Europe was always like one year ahead of the United States. So if you really went around Europe and saw what they were planning to do, you could project quite a, quite far into the distance, you know, because if that's what they were planning to do six months from now, then we would certainly be interested in doing that in a year. You could do that. And there were certain key people. Mary Quant in England was a very front-edge designer of that period. Uh, Alexander was a a hair and makeup guy in Paris I used to talk to him. Um, uh, there were various Eve of Rome had a cosmetic house in Rome. She was fantastic. I mean, she was very innovative, and you could see these things that she was doing. It was kind of Europe was a kind of a test field. You know, you could see what was working there. You knew was going to work, and the colors that they were going to do, and what they were, and it was very, very universal then. It was not anywhere near as as diverse as it is today. And I think if you're younger now and you're trying to say, okay, where are things going? You look at stuff, you know, that interests you and you figure, who are the leaders here? Who's leading the way? What, the, you know, and not so much, in, even not in fashion, but in anything, electronics, whatever. Who's the leader? What are they doing? What does it look like where they're going? And I think young people, I, you know, I think young people are great. I think that they're the ones that, you know, when I talk to them, I try to get into a headset with younger people because they're the ones that are seeing where all of this electronic communication is going. Advertising, you know, it's a big struggle because, you know, I'm, I'm working on a television series right now where everything on the show is for sale. Really? You know, That's... you look at it, every garment, every chair, every picture on the wall, everything is for sale. And then you can go online at the end and find out where to buy it. Because that's ad, that's that's a form of advertising, right? Yeah, it totally is. Well, you know, well, like you know, the show Gossip Girl. People pay a lot of money to have the characters on Gossip Girl carry their purse, wear their shoes, have their dress on, because all the you know the girls that are watching the show then want to know where that's from, and they go and buy it. And you pay a, the manufacturers pay a lot of money to be on the show, right? 
Right, right, right. Well, that's even like movies. Like I know the U.S. Army funds a, puts a ton of money into Hollywood, and that's why we get all these war movies and stuff because they want to glamorize yeah. the military. Because otherwise, why else would you sign up to put your life on the line unless there was glamour behind it? And, some and it's what it is. It's a form of advertising. Advertising will find its way, you know. And when you no longer have television commercials and magazines are not widely read, and there will still be a major, major ways of communicating to the public, you know, what is, what they would, it's hard, you know, people don't know what to wear, what to buy, what to drive, you know, they do need information. Right, 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 right. So let's talk a bit more about kind of your career and what were some of, like, because obviously you've got a ton of experience, you were changing different companies, what was one of the greatest challenges in your business career and how did you overcome it? I was. I noted this. I wanted to talk. You know, I think when you're beginning, you have like two things. You want a career that means a great deal to you. It's sort of you're fulfilling yourself through your career. And I think one of the hardest things is to shift gears and realize, look, there are two things I can do. You know, maybe Picasso is one of the few people that probably did something all his life that he really loved doing. It's not that easy. It's it's very difficult to find something to do that you want to, to divvy it up because very often you have to do that which the culture wants you to do, that which you have talent to do. I mean, if you're very, very major electronics, you're, you know, you better... Head, head into that. I think it's fine when you're very young. I always say 20 to 30 is sort of the test run period. Right. And you go and you try to do the stuff you want to do. And if you fail, it's okay. Because I think for me, the difference between failure and success is minimal when you're young. Because you're finding out what you can do and what you can't do. Right. And you mustn't feel badly about yourself because what you really let yourself down is when you don't try. Right. You know, if, you, if you're afraid to try it, then you really let yourself down. If you do it and you can't do it, you know, I mean, in many ways, I'm in mean, six careers. I sure failed in a number of them. Right, right, right. I got a great deal out of doing them. Right. Well, and that's the thing you is know? you didn't necessarily fail. You just paid for the experience. Yeah. But I think once, once you realize, what do I do? What is it I do that I do best? And then that – and because I – I feel you can really, you can't, I don't think it's really, um, I don't really recommend that you see your career as being your fulfillment of life. It's a part of your life. It pays for your life. But, you know, the fact that you're doing work that doesn't make you feel that you're leading a complete life is okay. Because you can go on and have, and you're doing a lot of other stuff. You're traveling. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're going here. You're living in a city you want to live in. But, you know, you have a life. And, you know, your career is, uh, you're trading what your best skills are for the income. And you do, and I think bringing, and it is a pleasure to bring your impact of your own personality on it. You know, I worked in advertising with these really tough people. And I was, uh, you know, you had to be careful not to become like them. But it was great. You would say, okay, we did this. We were very successful, and we were not bad people, you know. And they, they didn't break us down, and we rose above it. You know, you can get a lot of, of feeling of success in that kind of way also. Right, 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 right. No, but that's... it's tough because you have to... 
You know, you can't say, oh, gosh, this is such a terrible world. You have to be professional and say, okay, this, in this world, there's some of it's terrible, some of it's not terrible. I'm going to learn to deal with it, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grow up. I say, you know, I say, come on, grow up. You've got to just grow up and say, okay, I'm going to deal with these things. So 20 to 30 is feeling it out, trying lots of different things and being okay with failing. Does that mean in your 30s to 40s and that you can't fail? You can't take as many risks? Or? Well, no, but I always said if you test run 20 to 30 and then finally like about 30, say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. At 35, you will have caught up with everybody else that spent the last 15 years struggling forward you'll have caught up because you'll you'll know a great deal more about the world and you'll know a great deal more about dealing with different situations and i think i don't know i kind of think i mean everybody who knows me thinks it's foolish but i don't think it's terrible to have a new career every 10 years no i don't i am on i'm on your page it's funny because i don't think you know i don't know how well you know me but um you're speaking very well to me i mean basically since i was 15 i did a lot of exploring and traveling and ton of different careers. Did a program at Timovic where I got to travel Canada for nine months with nine other kids, half guys, half girls, all of us with different backgrounds, languages, cultures, all to represent Canada. So we even had an Inuit, an, an Eskimo. We can call him Inuit now. It's more politically correct. But an Inuit kid, Kenny, he didn't even speak English when he started. He spoke Inuktitut. And he had a full-time volunteer job. We spent three months in a, in a community before we moved on. You had a full-time volunteer job. And at night, though, the 10 of you were inst- were automatically signed up to volunteer at whatever was going on in the community. And so that was a wonderful nine-month experience. I got so much work experience out of that. But since then, like I'm 32 right now, you know, in my 20s, I, I did a lot. Almost what you said, I did a lot of different things, a ton of different things. And now I'm 32. And I've, you know, I decided I figured out this is what I want to do, and I've already had a couple million-dollar campaigns under my belt. One, one we even started with a budget of $500. And so it's funny because you say by the time you're 35, you'll have caught up with everyone. Because you said I'm like, you're right, because I think what you're saying is that, you know, when you do something you love, you'll do it better than anyone else. And you can't really find Well, and also, and, yeah, and Daryl, not even more than when you do something that you're really good at, you know, even you know you may you may not be that crazy about it. You may want to, you wanted to go to Madagascar and learn to be a you know trapeze artist. I don't know that may be what you really wanted to do, but your skills were elsewhere. Right. You know. Right. And and you can take a lot of pride in yourself, maintaining you very well. And also, you know, someone of your age, the world is changing so rapidly, Daryl. Mm-hmm. Much change, change much more slowly in my time period. And so you're right because very often what you're doing may evolve where you realize, oh my gosh, I have to I have to shift gears and do something completely different because what I was doing, you know, people who know their way around television. I mean, a lot of them have got to be thinking, what do I do next? Right. You know, because that that's a field that's that world is declining while other worlds are are climbing up. Right. You know. Right. 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 Yeah, it's actually very interesting you said that. I know a Guthrie Ranker. They're looking at a, trying to find out a way to drive the volume of traffic online that they get with television. Because of that, and because television is mostly an aging population, and so they're trying to yeah. figure out how do we get this sort of <clears throat> exposure and this sort of reach by, you know, by, by, I don't know, by using, by combining all these different media channels. So, um, yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. It's going to be very No, because I, I talked to a friend of mine yesterday. She's 50. I knew her very well in advertising at Gray. She uh, worked in South Africa. She worked in Singapore. She was very quick to say, okay, what I have to do, they would, I can do a lot better in South Africa. I can do, then she went to Singapore. Now she's back in New York. Her company 
is probably something that you would be very familiar with in that they, for major companies like Texaco, things like that, they project where the market will be. Mm. You know, they work with them and they say, look, you're going to do something two years. This is going to be your market. This is how people are going to think. This is, you know, younger people are going to want. She's, it's very, she's being very successful mm. because a lot of the management of these companies are older people and they need that. They have to have somebody younger, you know? Right, 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 right. So let's go back. So 20s, you're figuring it out. 30s, you've kind of figured out a direction to go in. But you're right, and more and more people are going to be starting new careers. And a lot of businesses, a lot of people listening to this call, I mean, even the Fortune 500, apparently none of them really last longer than 40, 50 years before they're either bought, sold, or chopped up and broken into pieces. So yeah. um, so I think, and, it, and again, that's only accelerating. In fact, I forget the statistic, but I know that you know kids today are going to have multiples more careers than you know probably your generation was expected to have. So, yeah, my, yeah, absolutely. So can you talk about that? Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, well, I think it's really, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about the one, so what's really important, I always, you know, I think you have to know, who am I? Who am I? What is it I really, you know, because a lot of people are trying to do what other people want them to do, what their parents wanted them to do, what right. their peers want them to do, what the culture tells them they should be doing. And I think you have to sit down, okay, I am this person, and I, what I really want my life to be like is such. And then you make a plan from there, because if you're not, if you're making it, because I remember at one point I had a good job at advertising, and I, I, I thought, this is a job for somebody else. Hmm. This is not my job. I'm not. I don't really like this job. This job would be great for somebody else who has different <laughs> qualities than I do. You know. Right. And I quit. I quit. I was there three months, and I said, "No, I can't keep. I, I'm the wrong person for you guys." Hmm. And that's important. I mean, I think a lot of people are afraid of that because they're like, "But what yeah. about money? And what about?" I know at least with my parents, my father's been, my step adopted dad's been been working the same company 35 years. You know, and they're starting to kind of like he wants. He just he's done. He's like ready to move on. He's been ready to move on for a while. And yeah. for me, I've you know talked already what I told you about you having lived in multiple different countries and speaking different languages. I'm like you know there's <laughs> the world is abundant there's so much there's so many ways to make it living out there for me i'm you know he's he's very attached to it so i fully agree with you that's a very powerful thing and very confident thing to do that a lot of people can't do and i think that's important that we mention that for anyone that's listening on the call because whether they have kids or people who depend on them you know it can be scary to commit to like having a period of no income Right or being on that job search again, and so yes, but you can always you should always be ready. I don't know. You should. It's easy for me to say, but Why is I think you should always be able. You should always be able to go back down and do something else that doesn't pay as much. You know, and of course, if you're married and you have children and you and you've gotten into, you know, your mortgage and the children's schools and all that, you can kind of get pinned in. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, right. but I think that you have to realize so as you begin to do that. And I, honestly, Daryl, I don't know that, that that's all that necessary. I think that a, a couple with children could say, look, I don't want to live in Westchester. I want to live in Nome, Alaska, and I'm just going to go. Right. And, and probably putting their children in the public schools in Nome, Alaska is probably fine. Right, right. I, think, you know, I yeah. mean, you have to realize that we don't, have, we don't have to get stuck in this routine just because a lot of other people are. Right. 
right. you know, and, and I would really rather do this or do that or go to another. You know, I think anyone who's bilingual now, Spanish and English, you know, I think this, and if they, you know, and if they can add, you know, Portuguese so they can work in Brazil. I mean, Brazil, God, when I go, I mean, you know, Rio de Janeiro is the most beautiful city in the world. And, you know, we at the moment, yes, it had, it's, but, you know, people say it's dangerous, but I lived in New York for a long time, Daryl. And I went there as a teenager, you know, you would go out and my aunt would say I was 16. Now, look, David, if the cab isn't taking you where you want to go, just get out at the first stoplight. <laughs> you know, because every, and always walk on the outside of the, outside of the sidewalk. Don't work, don't walk close to the buildings. Don't go to Harlem. Yeah, no, there's a whole code. Don't go to Harlem at night. Don't go here at night. Don't go there at night. New York was a very dangerous city. Right. You know, but but New Yorkers were tough tough cookies, and they had their whole all their ways of dealing with it. You know. Right. So I, I'm sure South you know South America may look dangerous by today's standards, but you know you have to realize it's it's all going to change a lot, and you have to it's not. You're not risking that much by putting yourself in a foreign country where you might, you're the star. You're the star. I think it's really, I know for myself, I really think it's very important if you can do it, you have to think of yourself, I'm the star. Right. I'm, when you go for a job interview, they are lucky to get me. Right. That's actually I can, huge. I tell people that I've hired if, if they it's not a good fit or for whatever reason they're moving on, I always make sure that they know that because finding good people who actually want to show up and do their work, it is it's not easy. People that actually There were only 40 of them in the world. I know. I know and they're all related. <laughs> and so it's just, it's just it's, No, cuz I'm still a judge. I've had probably two, three people I've worked with that you said, would you do this? You knew you would not have to check on them. Right, right. But most people, you have to keep checking on them, and did they do it? And then they didn't do it because such and such happened, but they forgot to tell you, blah, blah. Right. You know, so if you're really a capable person, you're, you're you know... You're, you're among a handful. And I think that that comes back to, again, to talking about what we were saying before, is a lot of people are doing things that they're not interested in. And that's probably why you've changed careers so much, is it sounds like, you know, you did that in the advertising. You did what you had to do in the beginning to build your credibility in that. But it sounds like now you're definitely on a path of fulfillment. And you're definitely pursuing what you want, what your heart's desires are, and you're finding a way to do it successfully and make an income. And I think Well, that, it's interesting is that you have... You know, when you get to the, you know, the upper end, the, you know, because I'm not young by any means, but you have things you want to say, like my novels and things like that, you know, uh-huh. and there are things you want to do and you want to get it done and get it produced and do stuff, you know, so that, you know, so that you don't check out never having done it. You know, the things you've learned, the things you know, if you leave them behind in like in, in, a, in the form of a book or a television show or something like that, then you know you've passed on what you've learned to other people. Right. Which is which is kind of the point of the whole thing. You know? Right. Having a legacy and having impact and significance and effect. Yeah, and because you come through, you've learned a lot and, and I don't know, I feel it's, it's really important to be helpful to other people. Yes. You know? 
Well, again, it is. It's, well, and to speak to that, to be honest, I mean, for myself, 32 years old, no children, never married. I did have a six-year relationship, but I think that's a real thing, like that, that striving for significance. It hit me really hard, so I did a fundraising thing, and this is, this is just because it's topical, not because I'm looking for any sort of praise. I did a fundraising thing a few years back when I had a martial arts school and uh, to help save a, a girl in Kenya, save her life. She had PDA, mm-hmm. aortis. There was a hole between the two arteries of her heart, and she was four years old, and as you get older, it opens, it gets, the hole gets bigger and you die from it. Um, so we raised $2,600, which paid for her surgery and also paid for her schooling for like a couple of years. And mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, it hit. I got a, I got a, I got tagged in a post. A friend from Toronto, who's who's like second cousin removed type thing, had gone back to Africa, and I guess she took a, she visited them, and there was a picture saying, "Hey, Daryl, here's Fatna. She's in fourth grade right now. She's beautiful, doing excellent in school, and it's all because of you." And yeah. that when I saw Great. that, it made it made I got choked up, and it was because I think, you know, a lot of us live very selfish existences. It's all about us, and you know, but I think. When after all the, was it after all the lights and screams, that's when you know the people around you really start to matter. Uh, a, a parent, uh, my parents' neighbor passed away in February, and um, he'd been battling leukemia for seven years and a day when he when it finally won. And I I'd been visiting him because I was stuck in Canada. I, I wasn't having immigration issues with the states, and I'd been visiting him a couple times a week. And I'd gone over and I took him his coffee, favorite two cream, no sugar. And he was really weak that day and tired. And I sat there for about an hour and chatted with the family. And he had five kids, and all of his kids have kids, and they had all come to visit because they knew he was on his deathbed. And I sat there for an hour, and I left, and I went over to my back to my parents' house. And about 20 minutes later, there was a knock on my door, and it was one of the kids telling me coming over to say that his that Doug had passed and I went back and I sat in that room and Doug's there and he was pink and he turned kind of white and then yellow and I just remember sitting there though and all the people like surrounded neighbors like I was a neighbor other neighbors had come over his pastor come over there was a lady that he met at the cancer ward he'd sent her a postcard every single week for three years just like like all these people from all over just came to like just to you know to kind of just to 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 say their 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 to give their condolences. Yeah, to honor him and to kind of to bid adieu. Yeah. And, I, and for me, that was that was a really impactful moment because we all have love, role models for business and success and health and sports and all that. But how many of us have role models for death? And so mm-hmm. when you're talking about like wanting to leave a legacy in that, I think that's really important for the listeners to think about. Like, if you knew you were going to die in six months, do you like? You know what I mean? Like. Are you at peace with that? Do you feel that you've given contributed to other people enough that there's a legacy behind you? So and I, just you know that you didn't just kill time yeah. that you lived. You know, like the things you wanted to do, the books you wanted to read, the places you wanted to see, that stuff. You know, and and I encourage people. You know, it may be silly, it may be foolish, but go do it yep. because it's what you want to do. Because. And also tackling any kind of a project. Like, you know, I have nephews and nieces who are, you know, as I always say, can't find their behind with both hands. And I would say to them, what do you want to do? Well, they want to be a rock and roll star. And I would say, look, somebody has to do it. Mm-hmm. Rock and roll stars are people. That's right. And you get them going. You get them starting doing singing lessons. You get them, you know, performing with their, you know, people in school and so on. And it starts them, and they don't wind up being rock and roll stars, but it takes them somewhere, and they intersect with something else, and they go on, and they have a career. Right, right. You know? Yeah, you don't have to get it right. You just got to get it going. 
And that's that's right, lesson. because that, and you with yourself, it's the same thing. You think, I'm going to go here. You very often, you know, you don't become a movie star, but you become a television producer. You become a, you know, because you're meeting people and you're doing stuff. No, you've got to get up and get up. The world is not going to come and find you. Yes. Oh, I love that's a, that's that's a great that's a quote for <laughs> that's a quote for this. No, book. it's true. You, people sit there; they they wait for life to come along and find them. It, you've got to be out there where life can find you. Yes. Yes. So well said. So well said. So, what are some of the best advice that you feel you've ever gotten in your careers? Things that have left a, a huge impact on you and really affected you. I was I was thinking about this as to you know what people have told me and what they you know. Um, I was the I I really think that um, I had a piece of advice once. I was I was 28. I was really down, and I thought, you know, what the heck? Where am I going? What am I doing? And I had a friend named Peggy Prague. Peggy was somewhat older than I, and and she said to me, you know, David, uh, I know right now you're feeling very depressed, but I can promise you, there will be things in your future that you know nothing about that you will be very interested in and interested in doing. Mm. And I thought that such was such, which turned out to be completely true. Right. No, because you're like you're 28. And you think, oh, God, 28 is a crucial year. You know, <laughs> 28 is the first time you realize you're not living the same year over and over again. You're actually getting older. Right, 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 right. Yes, yes. So well said. And 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 I was going through that. I'm getting older. What the hell am I doing with my blah blah blah? And she was, and I thought that was such. You know, later I've often thought of that because there's a lot coming up. That, you know, you haven't been there. You don't know about it. You haven't been to Paris, blah, blah, blah. You know, when you when you proceed to other points that you're interested in, things appear, people appear, projects appear, interests appear. You know, interests appear, things that you, you get to be very interested in doing something you don't even know about now, mm-hmm. you know. And and I think in the world in its present state, what could be truer? Right. Oh, yeah. You know, because every time you turn around, somebody has invented this, they've discovered that, they're communicating like this. Yep. You know, very interesting. We're in a very, very interesting time period. Oh, I agree. And there was an article in a magazine, I think, this was 2013, but it was saying that the top 10 in-demand jobs in 2013 did not exist in 2012. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. yeah. And so, how do you train for that? How do you write? And it, I think it comes back to what you're saying is that you know you get experience and you figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at by trying a lot of different things, and then you pick kind of where your passions are and you follow your heart because if you're good at it, you'll develop. You know, you'll put in the time. You will. You will like the fact that people want you to do it. You know, right. and you begin, You've got to become really because if you're not doing something by the time you're 50, if you're not doing something that only you can do. You're going to be turned, you know, I mean, businesses are very tough. I mean, great advertising. They'd fire you and hire somebody who was 30 because they could pay them a lot less money, and they could pretty much do what you were doing. Right. But you had to be at a point at 50 that you were like, you're not replaceable. Right. You know, because I had, I worked, I did, I didn't, was not an employee after a while at Gray. At one point in time, I decided to be an outside supplier. You know, mm. and I had, a, and I worked under contracts. I only worked 32 weeks a year. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And I, and I was always available to the client. But I would go in and I would send my lawyer and he would do his contract. And, they, and I raised it and, it was, and the fee went up every year. Really? 
because you had they had you know, they had to realize you know money said everything if they were paying you a lot of money it meant you were a big deal right 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 which is so funny i remember when i first figured that out um you know and it's 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 kind of that whole thing like no one goes to see the guru at the base of the mountain yeah. So there has to be some sort of obstacle to to overcome. They know they they you know like when you go and they say now here is so and so and he's going to about if it's not someone very you know that that a unique person very highly paid for what they do, the person that's getting the information is not going to value it enough. And that's the that's the craziest thing for me about human psychology. I've sat down with people and I've given them advice for free that I've been paid thousands of dollars to give that got results that generated in hundreds of thousands dollars generated and you give it to someone for free and it just goes in one ear and out the other and you just exactly. I just, I just i've it's been it's honestly that's probably one of my most disheartening experiences to be like no but daryl it's like it's like talking to your family <laughs> yes you know they can't imagine that this person they knew in third grade actually you know they listened uh, but right. they don't they can't really value it because you know i always tell people this story my oldest brother was the commander of the pacific submarine fleet and he went to visit my mother and they were driving and she kept telling him turn here do they and he said mom you know I am the commander of the Pacific Submarine Fleet. And she said, well, they don't know you the way I do. <laughs> right, right. Which is so exactly. there's certain places you're never going to get the respect you want. But uh, most places, you know, you have, to, you have to have that in your own head, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You have to think, what I do, I, you know, other people can't really do this. And, and you're perfectly justified in thinking this way because we are all of us unique. Each one of us is different, mm-hmm. you know. And you're, you've got to try to, in business, you're doing something where you're not really, and I think for younger people, it's great right now because older people realize they have to have this younger person. They have to. They, because, you know, our mindsets, my age group, our mindsets are such that we just can't, we can I learn it. I know how to do it, but I realize I don't. I don't really. I can't really see it. I can't really see it. I have to have a younger person. You know, really kind of tell me this is what's going on. This is how I live. This is what I do. You know. Right. But that's usually very valuable, and I know that for the young people, that's often a problem, is because they're unable to and willing to take other people's advice or get help and support. So it's kind of it's kind of funny how that works out, and how at the end of the day, yeah, it's reverse. So. Daryl, I want to say a couple things that are very, very – because I have a, a book called I'm Not For Everyone, Neither Are You. Love it. And it's 100 Things You Need to Know in the 21st Century. Okay. And I wanted to just say – because these are like very basic stuff, but like I never call anyone on business on Monday or Friday unless I have to. Right. Because they're occupied with what what's piled up over the weekend, or they're thinking about leaving for the weekend. So I always tell younger people, don't call people on Monday and Friday unless the circumstances require it. Mm. And I never call anyone before 10.30 in the morning. Mm. Because I think, you know, they're, if they're in their office, you know, there's always a lot of stuff. By 10.30, they've got it pretty squared away. They can turn their t- attention to you. Right. Right, right. You know, I don't call before then. And in the and in the beauty business, I think it's something everyone should know because Re- this was one of Revlon's things. Glamour is impossible before 11 in the morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't expect, you know, if what, what they're expecting from you is something that, you know, that you're exciting and different and don't do it before 11. 
Right. You know, because people just, you know, they're not fully awake. You could see it. You could see it. Mm. You know, when you're doing a commercial or you're working with photographers and things, you can see the girls suddenly about 11 o'clock, they're really up. Okay, we can go. Right. We can do it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so those are kind of things that I think that, uh, you know, those are like basic stuff in any job, in any place. Right. That it's kind of good to know those things, and and, and I want to plug. And I wanted, if I may, can I plug my new book? Oh, of course, of course. In fact, that's we were going to get into that. What you're working on, what you're excited about. So yeah, I have. A, well, I have a brand new murder mystery called Nakeder Than Thou. Okay. It's going to be. It'll be on Amazon in the next couple of days or so. But it's. Uh, I think it's my best book. Really? I do. Why? Yeah. Why is it your best book? I think. When I re- I re- you know I reread it I proofed it I said did I write this this is really <laughs> but it really it has those qualities where you really feel that the way people talk to each other really sounds like people really speaking to each other mm-hmm. and they really kind of take form and and it's very original in that the the person who died was like 150 years earlier really. Okay. And the center figure figures out who it was and who you know who the murderer was and all that. It's I think and, and takes place in France in the village where I live in France and and as I tell everybody except for the principal people, everybody is a real person. Right. And thank God the people in the village don't read English. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's it's uh, I think it's kind of it's quite unique. I, I think as a murder mystery, it's quite unique. But I just thought, you know, I really, I kind of really, it's one of those things where you you finish one chapter and you immediately want to go to the next chapter to find, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right. You know. Right. 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 Which I think is what a mystery book should do for you. You know, you should certainly never be bored. Now, are these under your name or are these under like a pen name? You, no, no, I write under David Lettick. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And the title of the book again? The Nakeder Than Thou. Nakeder Than Thou, and it'll be available on Amazon. Yeah. Perfect. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I I get kind of excited talking about it. Yeah, I can tell. I can hear it in your voice. And you know that means it's an art, a work of, of good art because if you're that passionate about it and you've already written so many books, I mean, you already – you know what I mean? Like it just – and that's one of the beautiful things. I mean, especially with knowledge and, and writing and that, you only get better as you get older. If you're in athletics, yeah. right, your body you, – your performance declines. But stuff like this, you just get better and better and better. So um, – Yeah, and you, I wanted to also mention I have a – you know, I'm a I'm, – I was a dancer at one time in one of my many careers at the opera in New York, and I relaunched my theater career about 15 years ago here in Miami. And I have a show called Rent Boy that just closed in London that I wrote the show. I have a great, you know, composer that works with me, mm-hmm. and we're going to try to bring it into New York next spring. Okay. But I was, and that's a show that I headlined here in South, you know, in South Florida for uh, two or three seasons. And uh, I'm just I'm very excited because we're talking about you know taking that show in because it's a small show and I think it could run for a long long time in New York. It did it did the theater was in in London. It did the best business that theater's ever done. Really? Yeah. Got it. So what should we keep an eye out for? How do we? It's, like... Oh, I, it, it's called Rent Boy. Rent Boy. It's about men who sell sex. Got it. It's one of those areas people don't know enough about. Right. 
enough. No, it is. It's, it's sort of people do kind of know about it. But I, I did a book. I did 40 interviews with men who sold sex. It was quite an eye-opener. And this is the other men or this is the women? This is men who sell it to both. To both. Yeah. Can you specialize? Because I know some guys that would just love to be in the other kid. Be like, I could get paid for this? What? <laughs> yes, well, they just, you know, they just arrested. They just closed. There's a company called Rent Boy in New York, and they just arrested everybody. Wow. What? But that was, it's an online thing. You know, you paid $59 a month, and you got, you know, your picture and your thing, and then people could call you. Really? That is crazy. Well, you can tell your friends. They can certainly, there, there are online companies for that kind of thing. That is crazy. I know I heard about it when I was in Japan. I lived in Tokyo. And for four, I never did it. I had a girlfriend, long-term girl. I was there with, by the time we left, we were together something like four years, six years before um, we went our separate ways. But, um, yeah, I know it was something in Japan, but that was because it was like the foreigner appeal, right? So it's like you're not Japanese type thing. And so that kind of made sense. But I guess, anyway, yeah, I guess there's billions it's of people. Very, you know, we're, we're in a – it's very funny because it's uh, – you know, just before we stop chatting, I just want to say that uh, I just read a quote from a major American writer. He said, you know, always, always, always in the United States, there's this sort of double personality. You know, we have the Americans who are very loyal. They're very true. They're very ethical. They're very moral. They're, you know, they're like everybody in the world thinks, you know, Americans can trust. And then underneath that is this other world of being very emotional and being very dramatic and like really, really wanting to live and feel and and I think that's pertinent for you know the people who may be listening to us talking that you have to realize that you have you know there are layers upon layers in your own personality and you can't just build a career for that one that wants to conform and have other people approve of you right right yeah you've got that you've got to build one that also allows you to contribute what you feel and you know and what in and that you really are really emotionally involved and you're full authentic person because I think yeah. there's a lot of people like again everyone's got closets and not even to be like skeletons like bad things but we all have things that you know you're afraid of revealing to the public so um, I love that bringing that up I mean I think that this has been a great conversation I think it's been very insightful I think it's given people permission to fail and make mistakes I think it's given some insight into uh, managing clients and you know if you're in a job that you're not enjoying kind of an outlet and understanding of what like how to look at it at this time in your life and understanding where you can go in the future it could be a wake-up call like you said if you're in your 50s and you're working for a company and you're, you're not irreplaceable that should be a warning sign for you that you need to take action and do something to provide more stability for yourself also giving permission to start a new career and to start over and then not feel bad if you're going down versus up as long as it's a movement, a step in a movement that's yeah. more fulfilling because there's more to life than just physical income. There's psychic income as well, and you need that. Exactly. And yeah, and emotional income. So you got to feel fulfilled. To think that. I just want to say, Daryl, you know, I have no secrets. Right. I have no secrets. I have this. You can ask me about anything, I will tell you. But what's amazing is most people will never ask that's you because right. they're so involved with themselves. Yeah. They're not paying that much attention to you, so you're, you're free to go live and, be, and have your life. Right. 
Right, right, right. So well said. David, I if I really appreciate you coming on the call today. I appreciate you sharing with us your experiences and wisdom in business and in life and just just giving some really good solid tips for people. Um, I think there's a lot of value in this call for some people. Again, I think it helps people find some direction. I think it's also really good in just reaffirming people's decisions that they've already made and just a lot of lessons learned, like the stuff we talked about predicting trends. I think that's really important and really, really powerful because I know people that have been in businesses that were headed to a dead end and they weren't looking for signs. They weren't looking at what the leaders were doing. They had no idea what was happening. And um, so I think... And young people, you know, I just, I think the world is going to be so interesting and everything is, you know, like Miami. I live in Miami Beach, which is a boom town. I live in Montevideo, Uruguay, which is becoming a boom town. I love a boom town. And I think the whole world Really, I do think, you know, particularly for the people who may be listening to us, you know, the whole world is going to become, in the world they're in, a kind of a boom town, right. you know, with lots of opportunities to do things. And you have to just think, okay, as I go through this huge marketplace, where do I belong? Right. And the fact that it's an international world and that you can, you can, you can, I've got a virtual team. I've got people from Pakistan, from India, from the Philippines, from America, from Mexico, from Canada, myself. I mean, just, the, the boundaries are really, really, really. No, you should never, never feel that you can't do something because of where you are. Never. Right, 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 right. So powerful. David, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask? I don't know. I was just—I was on just, I wanted to maybe tell you something funny, <laughs> amusing. Oh, my friend, I have a great quote from my. This is a really important quote from a friend of mine named Jean Ann. And Jean Ann always—and I, I learned this one. That's a big thing I learned years ago. She said, "Everyone is smarter than you think they are." Mm. So when you interface with people, don't think you're talking to a dummy. Right. Right. Because whoever you're talking to is probably smarter than you think they are, and they can be, you know, they can be part of your world, and they can be helpful to you, and they can appreciate you, and you know, don't don't think they're just some dodo. Right. That's great advice. That really is great advice. It's always no, I, the best I think people. it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think I think I've told you everything except the one thing. When I was in Revlon, I used to you know all these terrible, tough mafia-like people would be sitting around the room, all of them in their black suit and their tie and their white shirt and all. And I would look at there and I'd think, you know, I'm not intimidated. Probably somebody in this room is sitting out there in that suit wearing black lace panties. <laughs> 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 They're all shapes and sizes, right? There is like right. billion. So listen, <laughs> we don't know which one it is, but don't get intimidated. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, this is Dale. It was great to talk to you. It was great to talk to you, too. And again, thank you for sharing. I know I appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners appreciate it. So thank you and all the best to you and your loved ones. And you're definitely leaving your mark and your legacy here among our community. And just thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We will stay in touch. For sure. You've reached the end of our interview. Now first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, What can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give to them to just do it for you? Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. 
Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better, and your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. Uh, You're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.